I've just stepped off my bike after cycling over solid tarmac to one of the many buildings at University College London. Nearby is Euston Station, through which hundreds of overground and underground trains pass each day, all relying on the fact that the ground doesn't move. Much. So I've come to UCL to meet the people for whom the ground does move a lot. The team here at the Hazard Centre, next to Euston Station, in temporary accommodation at the moment, next to a giant building site, they found out that climate change is actually having an impact on the very earth beneath our feet. I'm Adam Smith. Welcome to Pod Academy. So here I am in the UCL Hazard Research Centre, Earth Science, says the sign on the door. And uh, you have to be specially buzzed in, but it's uh, not as if they've got any particular hazards going on inside, although there is a lot of building work on the outside. Uh, I've come here to meet Bill Maguire, who is the uh, former director of the centre, and for the past couple of years he's just been continuing his, his own research. And uh, also Rick Wall, who is a PhD student, looking at volcanoes and uh, predicting them by sensing the earthquakes that uh, happen in the run-up to the volcano. Let's just walk through this door and uh, see if we can uh, see Bill. So, Bill, we're here in your office and I can see lots and lots of bookshelves filled with books and journals and magazines and cupboards and lots of papers everywhere. Tell us a little bit about the life of... Uh, an academic in your field and uh, what your day-to-day life is actually like when you're here in the office? Well, it's it's not... I never think of what I've been doing since I was um, 21 as, as being a proper job, really, because I did a PhD um, when I, I worked on Mount Etna in Sicily for three years, um, which was a little bit like a walking holiday with good red wine and pasta, um, where you had to do a bit of research on the side. Um and then I've been teaching, lecturing in various places, doing various bits of research, and I'm, I'm now at UCL. Um, and I still don't feel I've got a real job. I mean, I, I teach undergraduates to some degree. Most of my work involves lecturing the postgraduates, studying at master's level for uh, our geophysical hazards program. Um, and I also teach people in the insurance industry. We run a course called Natural Hazards for Insurers. So we have people in suits coming in and uh, learning about natural hazards because obviously they're insuring and reinsuring against these, so it's quite important. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, the breadth of the research that goes on here and really what, what the mission is? Well, the Hazard Centre's been going since 1997 and it was set up with sponsorship from one of the, the, the world's big reinsurance companies. These are, these are companies who insure the insurers uh, and obviously natural catastrophes are a big thing for them. So we we have people here working on pretty much all the main natural hazards, on volcanic eruptions, on earthquakes, on tsunamis. Other people here look at aspects of disaster, risk reduction, mitigation, management, this sort of thing. So we have people working on all sorts of things, windstorms as well, floods. I was director from when it was set up until till, uh, 2000, 2010. So I've stepped down now, and uh, my colleague Chris Gilbin, who is uh, office next door, actually runs the centre. But it still you know, still has these very strong links with the insurance industry. Still has a very wide range of, of research. I would probably say, you know, in terms of our dominant area, it's probably volcanic activity, volcano prediction, uh, volcanic hazards, this sort of thing. That, I think that's probably our key area. Um, that may be along with 
with windstorms, particularly tropical cyclone research. Climate change, it's affecting not just the atmosphere, but also the solid Earth. Well, yes, it is. It sounds a bit mad, really, that, that climate change can actually trigger things like earthquakes and tsunamis and volcanic eruptions, but this is absolutely true. It's not speculation, because we can look back in time to when the climate was changing very dramatically in the past, and we can see this sort of reaction. For example, if we go back to the end of the last ice age, we had these huge changes in climate. The great ice sheets melted, sea levels rose 130 metres, and you had massive changes in, in the stresses acting upon the Earth's crust. So in places like Iceland, for example, when the ice was removed, you had a 50 times increase in volcanic activity. In places like Scandinavia, um, where the ice sheets were three kilometres thick, when they disappeared, the crust bounced back up by up to, three th- up to 300 metres or something like that. Um, and that triggered major earthquakes. So you had earthquakes in Lapland, you know, in Santa's Grotto, really, which were as big as the ones that we see today in, in Southeast Asia and around the Pacific Rim. So it's something that, that uh, we know from looking back uh, that is happening, that has happened before, and, and that we expect to happen again. But how do you make the connection between what has happened in the past with regard to climate change causing earthquakes and things, and what's going on now with regard to anthropogenic climate change? Well, there's, there's two points there, really. First of all, uh, if we carry on as we are now, in, in the sense that we don't mitigate our emissions, our greenhouse gas emissions, then projections for, for, cl- for temperature rise this century and for sea level rise are going to be comparable to those that we saw at the end of the last ice age. And you would expect to see, as a result of that, some sort of geological reaction. At the same time, we're seeing that reaction starting already. A place that I call the canary in the cage, really, is is the American state of Alaska, because temperatures are rising very dramatically, very rapidly there. Um, You have, it's a very tectonically active country with earthquakes and volcanoes and this sort of thing anyway. And as the ice is being lost from the great glaciers in Alaska, the crust is bouncing back up again, and we're already seeing an increase in earthquake activity. And it can be very, very nicely correlated with the, the loss of ice. The more ice you lose, the more the crust comes up, the more earthquakes you get. And a lot of these earthquakes that you're looking at right now, are they really, really big ones or are they lots and lots of small ones? Generally speaking, the earthquake activity that we're seeing in Alaska is is small scale. They're they're small earthquakes on the whole, but there's been one big earthquake, magnitude 7 plus, which is quite a big one. Uh, and that is has been linked to the loss of ice. In other words, it looks as if the, the, the reduction in load pressing down on that fault was just sufficient to allow it to rupture and generate that earthquake. It would have happened eventually anyway, but removing the ice seems to have brought the timing of that forward. And that's the sort of effect that we would expect to see around the world, where you have ice melting very rapidly and where you have active faults sitting underneath. It will Those faults would have ruptured anyway at some point, but this will bring that rupture moment forward so that you will start seeing clustering of, of these earthquakes in these sorts of areas. When we think about climate change, we don't tend to think about earthquakes, do we? Why do you think that is? Well, nobody thinks about earthquakes when they think about climate change because climate means the atmosphere to most people and to to some it means the atmosphere and the oceans and the way they interact. Um, And people just simply do not think that the solid earth beneath our feet has got anything to do with what happens in the atmosphere. But uh, the evidence from the past is that there is a very close link. And it's not surprising, really, because we can look at examples today of of how tiny changes in the environment actually trigger uh, responses from the solid earth. Um, There have been papers written in the last 10 years showing that earthquake activity in parts of Japan relate to the amount of snow that falls and how quickly that snow melts, changing the load on the crust. 
uh, you get earthquake clusters in Taiwan related to the, the passage of uh, storm systems, typhoons, and then the re reduced pressure that they bring. So geological systems, potentially hazardous geological systems, are very, very sensitive to, to, to tiny changes in the environment. So when you get these massive changes in the environment, as we've seen in the past and we may well see in the future, it shouldn't be a surprise that you see that, that response. And where does the UK fit into this picture with regard to solid earth and, and climate change? Well, the UK is, is geologically pretty stable. I mean, we're not near any plate margins where you get the big earthquakes or the big volcanoes. And the nearest one is, is a mid-ocean ridge that runs down the centre of the Atlantic Ocean, uh, the Mid-Atlantic Ridge. Probably the biggest direct threat to the UK from, from some response of the crust of climate change will come from tsunamis. Um, because one of the, the, the concerns is that if Greenland starts to lose its ice on a, on a very rapid scale, um, then the same thing will happen there as happened in Scandinavia after the last ice age. In other words, the crust will start to bounce back very, very rapidly. That would trigger big earthquakes, and they have the potential to, to, to produce submarine landslides by just shaking great piles of sediment off, which slide into the North Atlantic and trigger tsunamis. I mean, it's happened before... Uh, about 8,000 years ago, there's, a, there's an event called the Storiga Slide, where you had this huge landslide off the coast of Norway, shaken off by, by earthquakes as the crust bounced back. And tsunami, the tsunami generated by that was 30 metres high in the Shetland. It was 6 metres high in eastern Scotland. It went straight down the North Sea. It, it may have actually obliterated an area, an occupied area of land called Doggerland in the middle of the North Sea which archaeologists and, and now uh, are working on. People actually lived there because sea levels were reduced at the time. Let's go out into the Atlantic now. I know that people in your line of work are really interested in La Palma in the Canaries. Can you tell us why that is? Well, yes. I mean, one of my areas of research since my PhD is involved the stability of volcanoes. Um, volcanoes get bigger and bigger and bigger over time. They become unstable and big chunks fall off them. The, the flanks collapse and you get these very, very large landslides. It's a normal part of the life cycles of, of many volcanoes. Now, there's a volcano on, on the Canary Island of La Palma called the Cumbre Vieja. Uh, it occupies the southern part of the island. It's one of the most active volcanoes in, in the Canary Islands. Uh, it's been getting bigger and bigger over hundreds of thousands of years. Um, about uh, 50 years ago, uh, there was a, an eruption uh, which was really quite a, quite a violent one for, for that particular island. But the critical thing about it is it generated a lot of earthquake activity, and that earthquake activity was associated with the, the, the movement of the, the western flank of the, the volcano. It, it slid about four metres downwards and then stopped. And what's probably happened there that we think is that the, that the west flank's been detaching itself over a long period of time, and this fracture surface has been developing at the base and that intersected the surface during that eruption. So it separated the west flank from the rest of the volcano. And it's continuing to move today, not at a great speed, but at, at centimetres, maybe a centimetre or two a year. Now, eventually, that whole mass will collapse into the North Atlantic. It's nothing, it's nothing unusual. It's a normal event over a, you know, in, over a period of geological time. So it will happen. It's certain to happen. We don't know when it's going to happen, but it will generate a very, very large tsunami, which will be enormously destructive in the Canary Islands. There's a big debate about how, how large the waves will be when they reach the other side of the Atlantic, whether they'll be 10, 20 metres high or maybe just a few metres high. Could we see Manhattan underwater? If the waves are 10 to 20 metres high, the destruction level will be massive, obviously. If, even if the waves are 4 to 5 metres high, which don't sound great, I think people need to remember that in the Indian Ocean tsunami, many thousands of people in Thailand and Sri Lanka were killed by waves of that height. So even four or five metres high 
will be you know will cause huge a huge level of destruction if you were dealing with one to two meters then things may be not not particularly bad there's a lot of debate it all it all relates to how quickly the energy will be lost as these waves travel across the atlantic and there's a lot of argument about that and i don't think that'll be resolved until it actually collapses and then we'll find out well that's the thing isn't it can you actually predict how this thing would happen well we've We've never seen a volcano collapse slowly. Every time volcanoes collapse, they collapse catastrophically. They generate these these huge landslides that are called sturzstroms, uh, which move very, very quickly. 100 metres a second, that's about the same speed as a Formula One car going as fast as it can. Um, so it'll go very quickly, which transfers energy very effectively into the water. There are issues, though, that, that, that will relate to how big the tsunami will be, how big the mass that collapses is. Maximum size could be 500 cubic kilometres, but it could be... A few hundred cubic kilometers could be smaller. That's obviously going to d- determine the size of the wave to some extent. And then the, the key thing in terms of the other side of the Atlantic is how how that energy dissipates as the tsunami travels. And there are different models which predict dissipation at different rates. And that's what all the arguments about amongst the tsunami community. And that's probably something we won't know till we, we see the thing happening. You made a BBC Horizon program about this over a decade ago now. Can you tell whether we are any closer to it actually happening? Yes, I think it's 12 years since the BBC Horizon programme, which is still being repeated around the world, because I still get emails from people saying, oh, I've just seen this programme, are we in danger from Brazil or somewhere like that, or or the Caribbean? Since then, and a number of things have happened. That, that A paper was written by colleagues of mine the year after, which suggested that the waves would be devastating when they hit the, the North American coast and the Caribbean. And... Um, that generated a huge amount of argument because a lot of tsunami modelers said, oh, I don't think that's going to happen, you know, it's going to be much smaller. But there have been a number of papers since then um, which have supported the fact that this will be a catastrophic event you know, it locally and maybe the other side of the Atlantic as well. So that, that, that has progressed to some degree. Also, monitoring of the, the, the volcano has shown that this movement is still occurring. So um, we now know with certainty that the west flank of that volcano is moving differently from the rest of the volcano and it's continuing to to slide we don't know when it will collapse it could be next year could be a thousand years time could be several thousand years time but we would expect it to do it during an eruption because during an eruption you will have uh, a lot of ground shaking and that's one you know that's a a good way of shaking off an unstable mass of rock you'll also have new magma pushing up into the volcano that provides a physical shove as well, sideways, because this is a big, long volcano. The magma pushes up along a, along a ridge and then pushes sideways. And, of course, that magma uh, intrudes into the water table. And where you have that sort of situation, the magma heats up the water, the water expands, and that adds an extra push. So, uh, ideally, this thing would, would go during an eruption. But we don't know when the next eruption is going to be either. So, you know, it's, we're no closer to knowing when it'll collapse than we were maybe 10 years ago. On the other side of the world, in the Pacific, you've been looking at the solid Earth with regard to El Nino. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, yes, the El Nino research relates to this fact that the changes in the uh, small changes in the environment can actually trigger geological events. Um, and what we found in um, in the Eastern Pacific is that on the f- on the floor of the Eastern Pacific, you have a certain amount of seismic activity. You have small earthquakes happening um, pretty much all the time because it's a very tectonically active area. But it seems that uh, earthquake activity increases when the water level is reduced, even by maybe just 10, 15 centimetres. And this happens before El Nino 
conditions develop. What happens with El Nino is that the the water of the Western Pacific all floods. You get this warm water flooding towards the east, and um, so you get these warm waters developing in the Eastern Pacific, which which have ramifications worldwide for for climate and for for weather. But that that movement to the east raises raises the water level by a few tens of centimeters. But before that happens, the water actually shoves off to the west. So in the east, you get this reduction in the, the, the level of the ocean by maybe 10, 15, 20 centimetres. And that seems to correlate to the level of earthquake activity in the eastern Pacific. So what we might be able to do with this is monitor that activity. If you see an increase in earthquake activity that's statistically significant, that will tell you maybe that, the, that um, you're in this pre-phase where the water is shoved towards the west and it will eventually come all the way back again as El Nino. So you know, it's a great example of tiny changes in environmental conditions affecting the solid earth that um, actually might prove useful. In an ocean as big as the Pacific, how do you go about measuring a change in sea level of 15 or 20 centimetres? You just go out there and stick your ruler in? Um, fortunately, we don't have to do that because there are satellites up there that will do it for us. Um, there's a satellite called Topex, or instrument called Topex, uh, Poseidon, which, which monitors sea level uh, across the globe. So you can you can get your data from that which is, is is what we've done you're involved a lot in advising governments and international organizations with regard to natural hazards why do you think that's important and why do you do it two reasons really first of all humanitarian there are many more people being affected many more people dying as a result of natural catastrophes and also there's uh, they're, they're costing a lot more i mean year on year the the, the cost of natural catastrophes goes up um, last year it was getting on for a, a third of a trillion, maybe more than that, because we had the Jap- Japan earthquake and tsunami very, very costly. So you know, as we as the earth becomes more populated, as more people live in megacities in, in very vulnerable areas, so governments want to know what the risks are and they want to be able to, to understand um, how they can cope with those risks, how they can prepare in advance. Do governments listen? Well, they sort of listen to some degree for a while, uh, I think a prime example is the Indian Ocean tsunami in 2004. I mean, that you know, that really concentrated people's minds because it affected not only the uh, the populations of developing countries, but all the people that were on holiday, tourists from all over the world, in Thailand and Sri Lanka especially. Um, and Tony Blair um, asked David King, who was the government chief scientist then, to set up a, a natural hazard working group, of which I was a member. And our report recommended that we that we needed to um, set up some sort of international science panel who could identify these areas of the world where there were specific threats. Um, Because in many cases, scientists know what the threats are, but they're either not communicated to the people that need to know or the people that need to know aren't paying too much attention. Um, The Indian Ocean tsunami is a perfect example. I mean, Kerry C., who's an American geophysicist who worked out there, he was using his own money to tell people about the tsunami threat producing leaflets and this sort of thing because he knew there was a massive quake ready to happen um, and that shouldn't be the case. You know, governments should know what the situation is, they should they should be acting. Now, this idea was, was actually presented by uh, Tony Blair at a G8 meeting in Glen Eagles a few years later, 2005 maybe, I think it was, and then the UN thought this is a good idea, we'll take it on board but to be honest, nothing seems to have happened since. We still don't have a panel pinpointing these threats. Politicians not listening, which sounds like they're far more predictable than earthquakes and volcanoes, doesn't it? But I'm going to go and ask Rick Wall about that because he's just a few doors down, I understand, and he's doing his PhD in forecasting volcanoes. So 
Bill McGuire, thanks very much for taking the time. That's uh, been really fascinating to hear all about these amazing things that are going on underneath our feet and in our oceans. Uh, thanks a lot for your time. You're very welcome. And don't forget to buy my book. So I, I've come down the corridor from where Bill Maguire's office is and I've come into a, a bigger room with a few more desks and chairs and there's lots and lots of paperwork and uh, old manuscripts and books and folders and computers everywhere and I'm here with Rick Wall who is doing his PhD looking at uh, volcano prediction by uh, looking at the seismic activity that goes on around volcanoes. So. Rick, can you tell us a little bit about how you can go about using the seismic activity around a volcano to predict whether it will erupt? Before a volcano erupts, you have um, a magma source, so like a magma chamber or, or dikes, which inflate the edifice. So you have uh, magma coming up. It causes inflation of the volcano itself, and the inflation we see, we can see as deformation, which causes earthquakes in the volcano itself, and that's what we measure before volcanic eruptions. And how do you go about actually measuring the earthquakes? Are we talking about that thing that we've all seen on telly where it's a big roll of paper and a needle skittering back and forth? It is actually that many networks. So volcano observatories place lots of seismometers around uh, the volcano and they detect the waveforms that come from each earthquake and then they can locate uh, the earthquakes and get the size and the depth um, of the earthquakes that occur. So one thing I've always wondered, does that mean that people like you end up with a, a huge roll of paper with a w wobbly line on it? That is what you get in a lot of cases, but I, I don't deal with looking at the raw data. I, I um, look at, ask the observatories for their um, eventual uh, catalogue, which is a list of dates, times, uh, the magnitudes of earthquakes, the locations and the depths. So I don't actually deal with just the, the raw waveform data, but that does that does happen, yeah. I'm sitting here by your desk and I can see there's a pad with some graph paper on it and some uh, s some notes there and uh, some some lines and uh, on the computer there's there's what looks to be a fairly complicated scatter graph with lots and lots of dots and numbers all around all over the place so what do you go about doing with that data that you receive from the observatories the best way to do it is to look at the uh, the earthquakes in a time series and look back from the actual eruption so these are catalogues where I've, I've looked at the time of the eruption and then gone back before the eruption to see just to, as a first order just the number of earthquakes before uh, before an eruption but then I can also go back and look at how the earthquakes changed if there was a spatial cluster before the actual eruption or if there was a concentration at depth and and then I can infer if there was magma moving there or that was a particular stress concentration so that's what I usually do with the seismic data. Now, I know that you're interested in Mount Etna in Sicily. Have you been there? Yes, I've been twice with the Open University as part of the uh, ground deformation uh, study. And I've been, so I've been for two weeks each year in 2010 and 2011. And what are your memories of going there as a researcher who is studying this thing? Yeah. It's absolutely fantastic to be able to see a volcano that's actually quite active. So... It's nice to see all the uh, structures that you, you've been reading about and everything that you've, you've uh, been learning about the volcano. You can see in real time, so you, can, you get to see all the, all the fractures, you get to see all the cones um, 
Etna always has a, a small plume coming off it, so you can see all the gases. And it's, it's great to actually see something that's happening rather than just reading about it. Have you been there when it's been erupting? I have been when it's in an episode of eruptive activity, but sadly I missed the eruption because I was on the opposite side of the volcano in a thunderstorm. And what we actually heard was thunderstorm, but also the volcano erupting. But I didn't realise this until I got back. And I had a friend who was in London saying, please tell me you've got pictures of the eruption. And I had to say, what eruption? I had no idea, even though I was there. So an eruption does sound like thunder and thunder does sound like an eruption. Yes. Um, well, it was very, just very similar. I couldn't really tell either or. And it was only because I came back and realised there was a volcanic eruption that I realised the bangs must have been part of the, the volcano as well. It sounds almost like a, as a, a rockfall and you wonder what it is and then you look up and there's usually like a plume coming out of the volcano. Can you do the sound? I, I, I can't do the sound. It just sounds like a... Like, that's the best I can do. <laughs> you obviously have a very specific relationship with a volcano like Etna, having you know, scrutinised it and studied it. What do the locals make of it? Um... It's always very interesting to go because we always stay in uh, one of the local towns in Etna and they're all, they actually seem to know a lot lot about the volcano. They're always really, really keen to ask, like, oh, what's going on? And if they know you're doing work on it, they'll always say, oh, do you know anything new? But of course, because they live on it, they know an exceptional amount about the volcano and what it can do. And because they see it every day from their houses, they can they can just look up and see what the volcano is doing that day. So they're... They, it's really nice to see that they, they're really interested in what's going on. The public in general is becoming more and more interested in volcanoes, especially since the Icelandic eruption a couple of years ago. First of all, can you pronounce the name of the volcano in Iceland that erupted? Oh, give it a go. I think it's Eyjafjallajökull. Uh, that sounds great. It's much better than I can do. Do you think that the the because of eruptions like that, the public is becoming more aware of volcanic and geological activity? It, it seems to be, yes, that everyone seems to be a lot more clued up about it. I have a lot of friends who ask about volcanoes when they're erupting. and um, In fact, a lot of the time, uh, I've had friends who have told me that a volcano is going off, and I've had to ask where it is and what it's doing. You find that people are more aware of what they can do in terms of especially ash uh, and flight. Also, just generally, people seem to be more interested in uh, what's going on. And they also seem to realise now that at any one time, there's a lot of volcanoes actually erupting on the Earth. Whereas before, I don't think people quite realised uh, what eruptions were occurring and how big they were. It's like Hamlet. There's always one performance of Hamlet on stage somewhere on the Earth at any one time. Bill did his PhD on Etna as well uh, a few decades ago. You know, here I am sitting in front of your computer with all your charts and your graphs and your calculators and things. How do you think that technology has changed how people like you manage to do your work? Technology's improving all the time and you do realise just how much more sophisticated all the equipment's becoming and having looked at literature from in the 80s and the 70s you realize just how how lucky we are at the moment to have such such amazing equipment but it and it's still getting better it's still getting more sophisticated and everything's improving um and that just helps so much more in prediction you get so much more of a a feel for what the volcano's doing and it's it's just fantastic in in every department in gas seismics in de ground deformation uh you can pick up smaller movements you can pick up 
smaller trace elements, everything's just slowly becoming more sophisticated. Well, I'll let you get back to your work, Rick. It looks like there's lots and lots of uh, papers to sort through and calculations to be made. Thanks a lot for taking the time to talk to us about this uh, really, really interesting research. Thank you. I'm back on the street now, outside the Hazard Centre, and I don't know whether I should be alarmed by the power of the earth beneath my feet, or satisfied that we've got some bright brains studying it. Before I leave you to ponder that, here's the final question I asked of Bill. What is the one thing that would put folks like you out of business? A very large asteroid impact that wipes us all out. That would put us out of business. If you enjoyed this podcast, don't forget you can read the transcript and hear many more podcasts about the latest research on arts, humanities and science at podacademy.org.